Good morning and welcome to NTWC Live, brought to you by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, The Weather Company, The Weather Boy, uh, and Walmart, and Blackmagic Design. All of these companies help keep us on the air and make this program possible for you. We're here every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. We do a replay at 7 p.m. every Wednesday. And, of course, you can watch us on our Facebook page and on all our social media pages as well. This morning, uh, Tim is a little bit uh, working on some things, but we'll explain that later. We're going to toss now to Hal Needham. Dr. Hal Needham, it's all yours. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the National Tropical Weather Conference. I'm Hal Needham with CNC Catastrophe and National Claims and the GeoTrek Project. We have a great episode this morning focused on disaster recovery. You know, a lot of times we talk about the meteorology behind tropical weather, but what about the impacts and how to recover from those impacts? We have a very special guest today, Heather Legrone. Heather is the Senior Deputy Director of Community Development and Revitalization at the Texas General Land Office. She and her team are responsible for the disaster recovery efforts on behalf of the state of Texas. She has had a leadership role in all of the state of Texas's community development block grant discover, uh, disaster recovery program or the CDBG-DR since 2005 when the state was awarded disaster funds for the impacts of Hurricane Rita. The current $13 billion portfolio of the CDBG-DR funds covers recovery for Hurricanes Ike, Dolly, and Harvey, as well as Texas wildfires and multiple major flooding events. We were just talking before the show launched today how many disasters and different types of disasters we get in the state of Texas. Heather has been involved in all aspects of the CDBG-DR program to include creation of action plans, policy, and program design program implementation and housing, infrastructure planning, and economic development through grant closeout. The program has replaced over 22,000 housing units, thousands of miles of roads, drainage improvements, and water and sewer lines, and created countless jobs in the disaster-impacted areas of Texas. Heather, so great to have you on the National Tropical Weather Conference this morning. Uh, Really excited to have you. Before we get to Heather, though, we are going to go over to Bill Reed with a tropical weather update. Bill is, has been uh, very much a part of the National Tropical Weather Conference for a long time. He's a former director of the National Hurricane Center. Bill, what do you th- what do you see as you look at the tropics this morning? Now, uh, Hal gave you that great in- introduction, Heather. I'll just add that what we talked about earlier, that, uh, that uh, uh, you got your degree from Texas A&M uh, in 1998 in urban geography. Uh, actually, know a few people that are in urban geography over in, in Florida. It was a fascinating uh, 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 piece of education that abuts what we do in the weather world. So uh, it sounds like it fits really well with what you do. So to start with, could maybe you could describe uh, how you got into, into this career and, uh, and, and what all it entails to do the kind of job you're doing today. Sure. So thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate being able to get the word out and every opportunity. Um, So just like you mentioned and Hal mentioned as well, um, I've been doing disaster recovery for the state of Texas since since 2005. Um, I started out at A&M and thought I wanted to be a city manager um, and quickly realized when I got to the city of Austin that city management may not be exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in public service. 
So um, I moved into uh, the state programs uh, in 2005 and Hurricane Rita hit in August of that year. And I haven't looked back. I've been doing disaster recovery for the state of Texas since. So um, in my career at the state, that's been Hurricane Rita. That's been Hurricane Ike. Um, then we had wildfires that happened in 2011. Y'all may remember a Bastrop got impacted pretty strongly then. Um, then it was 15 and 16, the Memorial Day floods that we all remember. 2017, of course, was Hurricane Harvey. Uh, 2018, we had some substantial flooding here in the state, particularly in the Valley. 2019, we had Imelda and more flooding. And then in 2021, we had the ice storm. So altogether, that puts a disaster recovery program together of about $13 billion serving, serving all those different types of events and perils. Wow. Yeah, about the only thing you haven't had is uh, a, a swarm of locusts eating up everybody's <laughs> property. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to do a little research on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, uh, I think the thing that uh, uh, kind of amazes uh, a lot of us when we follow a big event, the recovery from a big event, is just how long it takes. Uh I mean, there were still there were still outstanding issues involving Katrina last time I looked. And that's what coming up on 18 years, 17 years ago. That's right. And, you know, Louisiana, when they started working on Katrina, had a 25 year plan for recovery. Um, and it, it does literally take that amount of time. Um, obviously, you know, when an event is happening, uh, you and your colleagues get involved and you tell us what's coming. And you tell us about how we need to be preparing and what to what to expect. And then the emergency responders, those first responders, the heroes of this story, come in and they are quite literally plucking people off of roofs. They're in the boats and the helicopters and the high clearance vehicles. Following that, FEMA and Red Cross come in and they shelter the folks who survived the event. So they put them in shelters and they give them hotel credit cards and they give them their initial payments. And then if there's a program available, then we can place people in manufactured housing units or travel trailers for a short amount of time. And we can spend about $20,000 to kind of get you back into your home. We'll get your power back on. We'll get your water back on. Um, We get the air conditioner back on. It is by no means pretty, but you're back home. We've mucked and gutted your house and got the power turned back on basically. And then a while later, the recovery starts. When the recovery starts, all of the regulations come with that longer term recovery. So um, when I tell you that it's been five years since Hurricane Harvey and um, we've put 5,600 people back in their homes, that 5,600 is a huge number for us. And it is faster than we've ever done it before unless you're 5601 (laughs) and that person is still waiting for their house. And we do fully expect to do another 12 to 1800 houses from Hurricane Harvey. And we will push out into six years after Hurricane Harvey that these folks have been waiting for their houses. So it is definitely not a sprint. It is more of a marathon once you get to the portion of the program that we're involved in. 
Wow. How do, how do you determine uh, 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 who, who's going to need your help versus those that uh, have the means to take care of their own? Because obviously a lot more than 6,000 homes were damaged by a storm like Harvey. That's correct. So for Harvey alone, we had about 900,000 applications of people who went out to FEMA and said, we have a need or we have a problem. FEMA comes in and they do some initial um, investments into those needs. Um, Insurance, of course, plays a huge role in that. We're looking for a remaining unmet need when we get there. Do you still have something related to Harvey that we can fix? And unfortunately, because of the timeline that it takes, by the time that we get to you, if you had the means to fix it yourself, you would have done so by now. Um, Those folks who are still involved in our programs this long after an event don't really have any other option to help themselves. Yeah, I've I've always uh, uh, felt like for most of us, it's our responsibility to make sure we're able to put ourselves back together after a, after event that there's, there's, there is a certain, unfortunately, rather sizable minority of the population that doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. And that's where the focus should be. That's correct. Yeah, we see a lot of generational housing. So those of us who have mortgages are required to maintain insurance on our homes. And if we're in a floodplain, then we're reti- we also are required to have that flood insurance on our homes. But if you are in a generational home that doesn't have debt associated with it, there's no requirement for that. And I was looking at the NFIP website this morning, the average monthly payment for flood insurance right now is running between seven and $800 a month. And so if you think about that versus all the other expenses that a household is dealing with, sometimes they forego that need. Yeah, I think there's a there's a crisis in the flood insurance that, that never gets solved. The, 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 what was the figure? Something like 80% of the homes flooded in Harvey were not in a, a zone requiring flood insurance. And that a lot of correct. those people uh, missed the nuance between require and need. Uh, uh, the, the flight control people up in Harris County will quickly remind people that uh, if you live here, you need flood insurance because there's hardly a, a property that doesn't have some kind of risk on that. And, uh, That's a great cost, I don't know what we're going to do about that cost. Is uh, I, I'm not in any floodplain, didn't flood in Harvey, and mine is doubled since Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know that I'm just, I, I can't imagine somebody in the, the, the lower income housing being able to afford flood insurance, especially if they're deep in the zones that are likely to get flooded. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, wow. How, how do you manage to keep up to when facing such a daunting task as keeping up with all these bureaucratic regulations and the slow progress you make in getting the funding you need to help people? So um, we are the long-term recovery. So we take the house um, from the blue tarp to the new roof or maybe even the brand new house. And our houses are built to withstand the next event. Very rarely do our houses suffer any substantial damage from a future event. So I know that what we're doing is strengthening these households in perpetuity. And this is an asset that that family now has that they they can utilize forever. 
Um, we see our infrastructure working, our pumps are keeping water out of neighborhoods next time, our drainage pro, pro, you know, programs and projects are ensuring that hundreds, if not thousands of houses don't flood next time. Evacuations just go more smoothly because of the roads we put into place. There are a lot of loopholes and hoops that we have to jump through for sure, but um, the best way I can describe it is we make Texas better and stronger with everything that we do. Um, so that's that's why I get up in the morning. That's why I keep pushing. That's why I look for the loopholes to make things work as best as we can for our citizens. Yeah, well, that's cool. I, I didn't realize you all were involved in, in for example, making a, a much better evacuation system after Rita. So mm -hmm. were you involved in that? that we were. We were, yeah. So, um, you know, we, we provided all of the signage and all of the um, – the rever the you know how we did the reverse lanes we provided all of that we widened the roads to make that a possibility in a lot of areas of the state there weren't shoulders that were adequate to serve that and um, there there are pullouts that were created to allow people to pull off if they were having problems particularly when with Rita and Ike we had those big backups in traffic that happened where people would just run out of gas and they were stuck in the middle of the road and we were having to kind of push people off into the median or what have you. Um, a lot of our projects solved that. We put in additional um, traffic control features to help support that. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, you probably worked a lot with Jack Colley back then. I did, I did. He was very yeah. dynamic on, on, very on, much so. on improving the, the, the outcome for an evacuation. Uh, even though a lot of a lot of Rito was, you could uh, uh, give a good chunk of the blame to the recency of Katrina and the catastrophe there that sparked the response for people to evacuate who didn't need to. Yes, very true. I'm just, I, when I first came here, uh, you couldn't even mention the word mandatory evacuation, and the, and there there were no because of that there were no what I would call viable traffic management plans and with mm -hmm. the size of Houston, you absolutely cannot go about your business of an evacuation without that. So yeah, I applaud you guys for doing that work. Yeah, um, well, I was reading your, your, your input there that the, the, the funding that you actually received after Harvey only meant 5% of your needs. Oh my goodness. Are local officials aware of, of how restrictive the, the amount of money coming back really is? Um, they, they come to that conclusion, you know, when they see the money come out, of course, you know, the, the mayor of Rockport or the city of Galveston or, um, Jefferson County's judge, they can use all of that money in their recovery. And quite frankly, they probably could. I told you almost 900,000 people said that they had a housing need. And that was before we even got into the needs of the, on the infrastructure side, the damages that occurred there, or before we even saw um, anything for our businesses to support our economic recovery. So um, our estimates were in excess of $100 billion in damage, and we got about $5.6 billion. So that makes it a really difficult decision on how to utilize those funds. I mean, you know, do you put it all into a single activity and we do $5.6 billion worth of housing? 
Well, you can build about four houses for every million dollars that you spend. So that means for $25 million, you build about 100 houses. $25 million in drainage activities can support 1,000 houses in removing them from floodplains. But that means that you're leaving people quite literally high and dry without a home. So trying to balance all of that and figure out the right ratios for each of those needs becomes really difficult. And in some cases, you're looking at differing needs, even just with a single event. Because if you remember when Hurricane Harvey hit the first time, it hit in Rockport, and it was a true classic hurricane. And so it was wind, and it wiped everything off at the ground. That's a very different recovery than Houston had, where they got you know, the feet of rain, 50, 60 inches of rain that quickly flooded, it went back down and then it came back again. And, but again, receded. And then when it got to Southeast Texas, again, feet of rain fell there, but that rain stayed in place for two and three weeks. So flat at the ground, quick, quick drainage of rain and then sitting in water. So even within the 48 counties that were affected by Harvey, we had three different types of need that were produced by the storm itself. So trying again, 5% of the money, all of this need and all of these different types of damage to start with. What we generally do is we go to our elected officials because I mentioned while we were getting ready, I'm here right outside of Austin. I didn't, I didn't suffer from Harvey. So I don't know sitting here in Austin what the priority is in Wharton County, but the judge sure does. So with every opportunity, we go to that local control. The governor encourages it. The commissioner encourages it. Everything about our program design is letting them as much as possible within all the rules and regs prioritize that very limited amount of money to their best advantage. Wow. Now, uh, uh, how large a staff do you have to accomplish that mission? So we are at about 200 FTEs. Um, and we have some vendor support that helps us out, probably about another 100 or so full-time vendor staff that helps support this. Plus, of course, all of our builders and all of our communities and the staff within their communities as well. Okay. I'm hogging all the conversation. Tim or Hal, uh, you uh, chime in. I'm sure you've got questions. Heather, you listed a wide range of perils, you know, from hurricanes and floods to wildfires to winter storms. So how does a response to, say, the, the winter storm or a wildfire, how does that differ than a hurricane or a flood? So a hurricane or a flood, you're usually looking at flood damage and water damage in particular. And that's a different insurance policy for our homeowner or our um, developer, even our community, than um flood insurance would cover. So in a lot of cases, particularly with the wildfires, we saw after the fact there was a lot, not really a lot of need for housing assistance because your general homeowner's policy covers a fire. Similarly, your general homeowner's policy is covering a lot of that damage from the ice storm. 
it will not cover it for a, a hurricane type event. As a matter of fact, it's probably got a disclaimer on it that says it won't cover wind damage, nor will it cover flooding. That rising water, I believe, is how it's categorized in most policies. So you just see the unmet need being quite a bit larger um, on the housing front when there's water involved. That makes sense. So if it's a wildfire, you might say, wow, 95% of these homes are going to be restored by their homeowners insurance. Whereas in a a hurricane slash flood event, it's going to be much, much less than that. That's correct. So then you only end up helping the people who didn't have any insurance at all versus people who had the wrong insurance for the particular peril that caused the damage. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you mentioned you're helping housing infrastructure. So if a lot of your housing is already taken care of, then maybe you can focus on on other needs. That's correct. And we always look at repairing what the storm took away, but strengthening and hardening it as well. It's not an if, but when here in Texas. I mean, I rattled off all those different years that we've had events since 2005 at the beginning We just need to take this very limited amount of money and do the best that we can with it because we're going to have another event that we need to be stronger for. When it comes to restoring and repairing roads, how much of that is, okay, this road was washed out versus maybe this road here could use an extra lane for an evacuation route or something like with a long-term vision for evacuation? Um, It's... I don't have numbers for you, but I would say that it's more about the damage initially to get to the road. But when we get there, we may put the drainage along the sides of it, or we may expand it and put the signaling on it to make it more um, able to handle evacuations. That makes sense. One last question I had for you. What about the the funding cycle and the recovery cycle in a calendar year? I mean, are are things ramped up for hurricane slash flood season? If you get a big winter storm, is it a little bit like, wait, we weren't, you know, uh, I, I live in Texas as well. The winter storm just blindsided so many people as opposed to hurricane and flood season. People are kind of keeping an eye for that and expecting something to happen. So we definitely watch June 1st coming. Um, We do preparedness type public service announcements. Um, We encourage folks to get ready. Um, We do events, um, get out and talk to people about how to, you know, get your important paperwork together and get your bottled water together, that kind of stuff. Um, So, yes, we definitely push more on the hurricane and flooding side of things. Um, We don't really do anything for the wildfire in preparation of a wildfire season or definitely an an ice event. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when we look back historically, we do have these rare winter storms, for example, but obviously hurricanes and floods in Texas are some of the biggest events mm-hmm. we've seen. Those are all the questions I had. Bill or Tim, do you have any questions or have any questions come in from any viewers? I'm back in. I can jump in for a minute here. Well, I, I think, Heather, the one thing, by the way, we're having appliances installed as we speak. That's the background noise. <laughs> but, um I think one of the interesting things is just I don't think anybody has any idea that the Texas General Land Office does this stuff. I mean, that's got to be a battle all the time explaining what it is that you do like you're doing today. Way more than than I ever thought. It's an education for me. No, that's true. Um, Quite frankly, um, I didn't know what the Texas General Land Office was 
before I got here. And this is just a small piece of what the land office has in its overall portfolio. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely often that it, you know, I introduce myself and I'm with the land office, like, what's that? Is that the state? So um, that is an uphill battle to a degree for sure. Um, one thing that we didn't talk about that I wanted to kind of hit on if we still have a minute is the time that it takes to get to this funding. So with Hurricane Harvey, Congress was great. Congress allocated Harvey hit in August. Congress gave us the money in September. In February of 2018, HUD um, published the rules for it. And then in May of 2018, they finally approved our use of the funds. So it was going on eight months later that we first got access to that Harvey money after the storm. With mitigation, that took almost three years for us to get to the money. Congress allocated it in February of 2019, and we didn't get our grant agreement until 2021. So that was almost three years from when Congress said the state of Texas needs this money to it actually getting to us in Texas. So in addition to all the layers of regulations and bureaucracy and what have you, um, there's this wait period before we can even begin with these dollars um, quite often. That's interesting. And again, I'm sorry about the background noise. We did get a question online, and that's from Casper. Wants to know if you've done anything regarding gas shortages during evacuations. Um, is there some way to solve that? How do you mitigate that kind of problem? So that's coming through Department of Emergency Management. Um, that's when those first responders are still working. That's when um, NIMKID and the DEM folks are working on that. Uh, what they do is they pre-position gas trucks along the major routes and they utilize runners to get gas to the vehicles that stall out. Very good. I'll let you guys jump back in. There's a lot of noise here. So go ahead, guys. Yeah, as far as the gas question as well, is there, this made me wonder, is there a way to get more gas to the actual gas stations as well? Like, do they have extra supply on hand, you know, for people that can make it to the gas station, but they're almost on E? Yeah, so um, that's something that we have definitely seen uh, the Department of Emergency Management and DPS working on as well. Um, we've seen them doing that. And then you don't think about it, but when the power's out, those very fancy gas pumps don't work. And so then you see someone going around with a generator on a trailer to power those gas pumps to be able to put gas into people's cars. Yeah, and they, another point that uh, was added after Rita, the uh, the EOC in Austin, state EOC has as a member of their team during an event like a hurricane evacuation, uh, there's representatives of the private sector, including uh, the distributors of gas. Correct. Uh, and on, on a humorous note, there was a cartoon in the in my uh, cartoon box the other day. <laughs> It showed an uh, electric car with his evacuation uh, emergency supply. It was a solar array on the roof of the car. <laughs> Charges battery. So, uh, but that is a question. I don't know if they've got a solution for that yet. I, I would not want to have to try to evacuate with an electric car given the current status of the recharging capabilities. Uh, Heather, I a, could I ask another quick question? Uh, 
Texas is really in a very extreme drought right now. Are there any recovery assistance or funds for say farmers or people impacted by the drought or is that not really kind of part of disaster recovery in the same way? So the disaster recovery funds that we deal with are always supplemental in nature. They do literally take an act of Congress to get those monies to the state. Uh, So far, Congress has not taken any action on the drought. Um, But I do know that we're keeping track of those numbers so that we can report those out and prove up that need. Um, And we have seen, particularly as it relates to the fires that result in a lot of cases from the drought, um, allocations come out for that. Bill Reed was just doing some field work for this. He drove all the way to New Mexico to to survey what was happening. And he said it's very dry out there. (laughs) Definitely. Yes. The the stretch I took from... uh, uh, south of Eastland to uh, uh, Waco, the, the stock tanks out on those uh, farms were all dry. There wasn't any of them I saw with even a, or even a hint of wet soil at the bottom of them. Uh, there was no grass on the ground uh, other than mesquite and juniper and cedar, uh, no green growth of any kind that I saw out there. So it's, it's another nasty uh, Texas drought that, that we're going through there. Uh, I've been kind of following the the uh, semi-involved in the recovery process. As you pointed out earlier, uh, we're mostly a front-end thing. We uh, people, uh, friends of mine that are snarky in the emergency management world, refer to us, the meteorologists, as the guys and gals that come in and have a wild party, and then as soon as we trash the place, we leave, and we guys to put it back together. <laughs> but the uh, the thing that uh, strikes me is it seems like it's taking longer. The red tape is getting thicker on, on doing the kind of job that you guys do. Uh, do you, and I've seen it in post-storm reports as a major problem. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel on uh, resolving some of that issue? Maybe a little sparkle. <laughs> Not a whole lot. You're right. Um, it is getting harder and harder to implement this program. Um, this is not a real program. It doesn't exist in regulation. So what HUD has to do every time the Congress allocates them funds is to write a new rule book associated with those funds. I told you about eight different events that we're working on right now with our portfolio. There are 23 sets of rules that we have to follow that are different one to the next. Obviously that's inefficient. Um, It wastes a whole lot of time. We end up having to write hundreds of pages of documentation as to what we're going to do to check all of those red tape boxes that you mentioned. And it creates inequities in delivery because you'll see in a 2000 event, I'm sorry, a 2015 event, we can do something that we can't do in a 2017 event. Um, And we have to tell this victim from flooding, yes, we can serve you, but the next one, we can't tell them the same thing because HUD's changed the rules from event to event. Um, Immediately following an event, there's always a lot of interest and, you know, all of the delegations from all the different states get together and they're like, this is ridiculous. It takes too long. We're going to fix this. The further and further out that we get from an event, Other things take priority in the Congress, but there is a couple of things that continue to kind of get revived. Um, This past week, Al Green from Texas 
actually added um, a reforming disaster recovery act onto another bill. Um, that bill came out of the Congress. Um, there's a partner bill that um, Brian Schatz, who is from Hawaii of all places, created in the Senate. Those two bills are pretty distinctly different, but if the Senate could pass that bill, then we could get to a reconciliation. And what that reconciliation and ultimate passage would do is create the disaster recovery program as a program in regulation. So what we would see happening is instead of HUD having to reinvent the wheel each time, we would all know what the playbook was the day after the event hit, and we could start working months and in some cases years ahead of those dollars being made available because we would know what was going to be applied to those dollars. Um, so that's the glimmer of light that I see kind of at the end of the tunnel is the possibility that Congress may codify this into an actual program and take some of that bureaucracy out of the way. It would, it would seem logical given the fact that uh, it's not just a Texas thing that we have disasters uh, it's, a, it's a national thing. That brings up another little question. Uh, uh, for example, does Louisiana handle the, the, the state role the same as you do in Texas, or is there something different? They do. They do. So I have a colleague in Louisiana. His name is Pat Forbes, who's been doing this almost as long as I have. Um, and we partner on a lot of things together. Uh, we definitely try as fellow states to get together a couple of times a month and just talk about lessons learned, problems, how are you solving this, what issues are you dealing with, to try to work together to not reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, if I have a processes or a procedure, even just a form that's working well for me, let Louisiana find and replace Texas with Louisiana and use it. There's no re reason for them to start again from scratch and vice versa. So we have a pretty strong partnership with the repetitive event states. So California, Florida, um, some of the East Coast states are all participants in this group that I work with on a really regular basis. That's good. Yeah, because I, I, I kind of thought maybe that's part of the reason each event gets handled differently as different states do different things, but that apparently isn't the problem. I had one other question I'd written down beforehand, and uh, uh, a good chunk of your audience is, is uh, in the weather communication business, uh, and I I don't think uh, we really cover what you do all that often, but do you, can you think of anything uh, uh, that we could be of help for in raising awareness of, uh, of how the recovery process works and, and how people should go about addressing it? Oh, for sure. Thank you for that. And like I said, any way we can get the word out. Um, I would definitely ask you all to encourage preparedness, um, encourage people to be ready to include getting that insurance with whatever means they can, understanding that's not an option for everybody. The federal government does bring money to the table, but on the average, they only pay out about $8,900 to a participant. Those 900,000 people who said they had a problem from Arby got $8,900. If you are completely 
out of your home. Your home is completely destroyed, wiped off at the ground like in Rockport. Um, you're going to get less than $40,000 from the federal government to rebuild that house. NFIP, on the other hand, will average pay out about $115,000. So if you can pay for insurance, if you can have insurance on hand, you should definitely be doing that. Your recovery will go much smoother. You won't be waiting five years out for us to get to you, get through all of that red tape and get to you to be able to help you. Um, one inch of water in your home can cause about $25,000 worth of damage. So if you're thinking just an inch of water, when Houston had people with six feet of water in their homes, and then in Beaumont, they had six feet of water in their homes for 12 days, um, $8,900 doesn't go very far. So that would be my suggestion um, with your audiences. If you could encourage that preparedness, recovery.texas.gov is our website. There's a preparedness section on our website um, that has some checklists and some helpful hints and great links to other things that are supportive of that, um, as well as, you know, just pushing insurance. It makes a big difference. Yeah, that, uh, that to me is the, the, the most direct and clearest way one can uh, if nothing else, reduce the stress load they're going to have from an event. That's right. So they have the uh, the insurance on there. I, uh, in Harvey, the water got on our porch. It was about an inch from coming under the floor. And while I didn't like it, I, the, the first thing I did when I saw how high the water was going, I took the flood insurance policy from the file in my in my desk and put it in my waterproof safe <laughs> in the bedroom. <laughs> so I can't believe the water's this high. So I'm supposed to, we're supposed to be able to drain this neighborhood, but uh, that's the way it went. Uh, well, that's all I have. Tim, Hal, you got something to add here? I'll go ahead and then I'll, I'll come up with a follow-up. Heather, how often do you interact with people that had insurance, but still got blindsided? You know, they said, I thought my contents were covered. I, I didn't read the fine print or, well, I have homeowner's insurance. Doesn't that cover the flood? I mean, how often do you interact with people that said, we thought we were doing the right thing, but they still weren't really in a good place? That does happen quite a bit. Um, you can have um, hazard insurance, the typical insurance that most of us carry. You can have windstorm insurance and you can have flood insurance. And the three of those entities are kind of pointing their fingers at one another and saying, not my, not my expense, your expense. And we do see homeowners who will spend years in legal battles trying to get a payout on a policy that they believed covered what they had, um, you know, to cover. Um, so yes, that does happen pretty regularly in our program. What we usually do is go ahead and help that homeowner, but they sign an agreement with us that says if they ultimately prevail, then they will give those proceeds back to the program so we can help somebody else with it. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I've, in, I've interacted with a lot of people that felt like they, they got blindsided or they didn't really maybe understand what's going on. And it sounds like you're doing what you can to help inform mm -hmm. people and, and get out ahead of this. The, the last question I had for you, I mean, this great work you're doing sometimes extends for years beyond the disaster. And we know how it is the week of the storm and maybe the week after it, it's in the media and then quickly the media moves on to something else. Are there ways you stay engaged with the media or with social 
social media to, to keep bringing attention to the great work you're doing that can extend for years beyond the original disaster. We do. So um, we celebrate along the way. Um, we recently did an ad, ad campaign when we hit 5,000 houses completed. Um, we bragged about spending a billion dollars. We bragged about spending $2 billion. Um, when new events are coming online, we do groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings and those types of things. So we we try to let the public know that we are still out here and we are still progressing with the recovery just so they know what's happening with their money. Yeah, that's great. I think that type of engagement, because people remember the storms and they might be surprised, like, wait, you're still doing recovery work all these years later. It's good for people to know the great work y'all are doing. My own family does that. They're like, wait, you're still working on that? So, yeah, it, it's it's unimaginable. It doesn't make sense to normal people that it takes as long as it does. Tim, did you have some questions? Just, just kind of to finish up, obviously you're passionate, Heather, about what you do. You've been doing it a long time. You've been in a lot of uh, rough situations, I'm sure. Are, is, there, is there a takeaway from you, something you've learned or a story that happened or something really hit you that like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing? Um, sure. So uh, very recently, uh, we had a homeowner that we gave her keys to. Best part of my job is giving somebody a new house. Um, so it was a family of eight. Um, they had been displaced. Uh, they had some special needs kiddos in the family. They had some foster kids in the family. And they, as a family unit, were trying to support this family. And so kids were staying here and kids were staying there. Um, it was just a mix of uncertainty for this family. And we were able to build them a house and bring them all back home. And that homeowner was so thankful for what we were able to do for her. You know, we're sorry it took so long. We're, we're so excited to bring you home. And she's like, no, 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 you were great. You were so helpful. You were so wonderful to work with. And she wanted to know um, how much more work did we have? And we told her, well, there are about 600 more people on the wait list for that particular program that she was involved in. She called her pastor over there who had come to bless the house that they were moving into. And she said, I don't want you to pray over just my house. I want you to pray for those people who still have needs that these wonderful people are going to serve. And I get chills telling you about it again because it was so great to be able to do that. That's remarkable. And you must have stories like that. That just the great oh, I thing love that, to tell stories. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, you've been terrific today. Great. Uh, just great stuff that you're doing. And I, I think there's a general lack of awareness about what TGLO does. So, so thank you for your time today. We really Absolutely. Thank you all for helping me get the word out. Of course. Of course. Bill, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, no. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, that was enlightening. Was, you taught me a lot of things I wasn't totally aware of. And uh, it's always good to keep up with the, uh, the back end of a storm as well as the front end. Important stuff. How? This may be a bit of a strange question. God forbid there was a big hurricane or flood in the next couple of years in Texas. Is there a way that if Congress uh, appropriated funds or, you know, a program to help the new people recover, is there a way that that would also help, say, like the Harvey victims or is each disaster completely separate? Unfortunately, they are completely separate. So um, we had some money still in the bank for 15 and 16 when Harvey hit. 
but we couldn't touch that many to start helping the Harvey victims. So that was just for the 15 and 16 people, even though That's there were correct. huge needs with Harvey, that was completely separate. That is correct. Those are all my questions. Thank you, Heather. Great presentation. Absolutely. Thank you all. Well, I want to take just a quick moment. Thank you, Heather, and thank our sponsors who are part of the program today. USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, Walmart, the City of Brownsville, Black Magic Design, Weatherboy, Port of Brownsville, the Weather Company, and Live View, all part of what we're doing. So great program today. Very educational, very informative, and hopefully it'll create some awareness for us in the media to stay on top of things and always know we can look to the TGLO for answers. Again, thank you, Heather. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you all next week, 10 a.m. on Wednesday. Dr. Phil Klaasbach will be joining us with his updated hurricane forecast. That's next Wednesday at 10 a.m. So join us right back here again and hear uh, what Dr. Klaasbach thinks is going to happen for the rest of this hurricane season. We're pretty much on average so far, but we know it's going to get busy again. So thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.